Hello, a salubrious salutation to you, crafties. This is what I read in the Arena Craft email every day from like random spam accounts that just don't even know how to talk to people. So salubrious salutations to you, fine crafties, and good morrow. Hope it's a good day. Welcome to the Arena Craft podcast, a show focused exclusively on Magic the Gathering Arena. My name is Arjuna. I'm one of your hosts. Joining us today is the, the regular old Snoopy. He's the Lucy to my Charlie Brown. It's Kovarko Blue. How you doing today, buddy? Just Lucy checking in, getting ready to pull that football right out of range. Someone needs to face plant. Sometimes I do feel like when you go on your rants, like the end of last week, I should be charging you one to two cents for the psychiatric help. Yeah, with your clipboard being like, hmm, and how did that make you feel? We're boomers. Do you think that kids these days have any idea about Snoopy? Any idea about peanuts at all? I used to live in like Charles Schultz's hometown. So I actually was like inundated with it all the time. But yeah, I don't know. Probably a folk hero in that town. Are the streets all named after Peanuts characters? That's what I want to know. Did you attend Snoopy Memorial High School or something? They had an ice rink that was like the Charles Schultz Snoopy ice rink or whatever. But they also had, you know how towns have been doing this thing where they have like a series of statues that are all like the same thing painted by different artists or whatever. So we had a bunch of Snoopies and Woodstocks and stuff. This is a thing towns do now? I'm not familiar. You're not yuppie enough, Kovacoblu. That's your problem. We rough it here in northern Michigan, you know? We ain't got time for art and culture. We just have to get by. We got driveways to shovel. How much boulevard space do you have in a one-horse town? Some of our towns have been confirmed as two to three horses. Yeah, still not a lot of spots to decorate. As long as they can cough up an LGS, that's all that really matters, right? Yes, you are correct. (laughs) So, today, I'm still recovering from COVID, so bear with me, crafties. Today, we have commenced the set championship on Arena Uh, which is a fancy way of saying like a tournament that people are supposed to care about. The fun time is that they chose to do alchemy and historic for this tournament. So that's a thing. So, uh, you know, just bear with us crafties. We didn't have a choice in the matter. Alchemy is coming back. The greatest format ever made. Alchemy is coming back, baby, because now it's being played on the big stage. You know, a lot of pros on Twitter were actually saying they had a lot of fun testing for this format. Maybe it's just because none of them had like touched alchemy in months and so it was like all fresh and woo and fun and whatever but there have been some surprising things and uh, the meta game is fairly interesting so i think that we are actually going to have a lot to talk about today so we got the deck list submissions of course and as we're recording this the tournament is currently a little over halfway through of day one so we get to see the alchemy breakdown of kind of like what's doing well and what's not so we're going to get into that, but like CGB, where, how, like, where do we even go to? Where do we go to find stuff? You're, are you looking for the standings or the deck lists or like what the undefeated players deck lists are? You're looking for some stuff like that? Uh, all of the above. Um, I know exactly what to do because I have studied magic.gg more than any human being on the face of the planet, including Wizards of the Coast employees. What you want to go to is magic.gg slash news slash Neon Dynasty Championship Round 4 standings. And if you scroll down past the big Twitch screen that they put at the top of absolutely every single page, you'll be able to find a list that shows who is undefeated well not undefeated it wouldn't say that it would say how many points they have and points in case it's not explained on the page but what you need to know is that points are like three for a match win and one for a draw should one of those ever actually happen in zero for a loss so since we're round four standings the people with 12 points are actually undefeated then if you want to know what decks they're playing you can open the deck list page now there isn't one deck list page for the entire event there are instead six because they're alphabet by the last name of the person playing the deck. So you have to go get the person's name and then you go and you open the decklist page. I have all of them open in my tab because I'm a lunatic. You have to open the decklist page that contains the letter of their last name in the breakdown and there's one for historic and there's a separate page for alchemy. So if you want the alchemy list, you have to go to alchemy and then you go control F and you put in your favorite player's name. Uh, Unless they're a streamer, you can't put in Mistman and find him, but you 
do have to know his real name, and then you can find it. But say if you want Jim Davis, also a streamer, by the way, you can put that in in the Ds, and then the Control F will take you, and you can see one of the two deck lists he's playing in the event. It's simple. I mean, I don't know why I didn't figure it out before. Crafties, the year is 2022. We're in freaking like future Tokyo and we're in this digital only format. So naturally we have access to all the information that we need and uh, everything's fine. And for fuck's sake, I'm just going to go look on uh, Robert Taylor, a.k.a. Fireshoes' Twitter, because obviously he's going to tell me <laughs> the most important information. Or you can find the guy from Iowa who isn't even a Wizards employee on Twitter, who has more Twitter followers than most people in Magic, who just tweets out the stuff people actually want to know. How could that be so much data in front of me, and how could it be so useless? I'm baffled. CGB told me where to go, and I like went and looked at it, and I was like, I don't, like this doesn't even tell me anything that I want to know. <laughs> I have pages and pages of data, and they're, they're not telling me anything. Thankfully, this is what we're for. The crafties can just, they know they can tune in, listen to this, and get some of those sweet nuggets without having to dig for them. This is our purpose in life. Okay, so why don't we, before we get into like what's actually happening, let's take a look at good old Frank Carsten's metagame breakdown. You know, we actually have access to the lists that people submitted. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I'm looking at a bunch of historic stuff. Let's look at the alchemy metagame here. Let's just go like top to bottom. We're, we're kicking it off in alchemy with mono white aggro, which surprise, surprise is still a popular deck. Crafties, 53 decks, uh, just over 23% of the field on mono white aggro. So if you thought that that deck was dead, think again. Number two, the deck which has a huge target on its forehead and probably the reason why so many people were playing mono white aggro in the tournament, Naya Runes. 42 decks at 18.3% of the metagame. And CGB, I just, you would never in a million years guess what number three is. I wouldn't have guessed it. Now I know. And it's been, you know what? Why not play alchemy, guys? Look, it's proof that these kind of silly, ridiculous buffs might actually do something. It really is like an ad. It's a hashtag ad for like the choices they've made so far that we've been pretty critical of. But then when you see it play out, it's like, maybe. Anyway, say it. Ozov Venture. Into the dungeon. We're going into the dungeon. Uh, we're bringing out the gimp. Everything's fine. Yeah, this deck, uh, I don't know. I guess we'll, we'll catch up in a little while and see how it's actually been doing. But believe it or not, got buffed enough to convince some pros to actually play the deck. Next, we have a Mardu midrange list, which I'm not even really sure what this list is. You can probably help to enlighten me on that. We're going to talk about it because there's like three or four different versions of this. The Rakdos midrange and the Grixis midrange that you see also on the page further down. They're kind of all the same thing. I was wondering if there are any kind of like angel fiery decks going on or if that's just not a thing that happens in this format. Angel fiery decks? Like what, what are you doing with angel fire? Is that the card I'm thinking of? The one with flashback? Was that something you expected? Or is that just what you think when you see Mardu for some reason? Well, so in Standard, I believe it's uh, Crows has been playing and popularizing a Mardu list. It's basically like Ozov running like Showdown of the Scalds and Angel Fire. and The point is Hitsugu consumes all because you give it double strike with Kaya's Onslaught or with the Angel Fire thingamajig invocation. Yeah. Anyway, Initiation. Uh, whatever. Ignition. I got it. Angel Fire Ignition. That's the one. You give it double strike, and if it can hit for 10, the opponent loses on the spot because of the what it says on the flip side. That deck is straight meme. I'll, I, I will die saying it. Good to know. I was skeptical myself, but I'd seen a lot of press around it, so I was wondering if it was showing up. Clearly not that. You'll be happy to see at 6.6% of the meta game, 15 decks, Azorius Control. Still doing its probably key to the archive nonsense in the alchemy format. To round things out, we have Racto Sacrifice, Jeskai Hinata, which Chris Patello was shocked wasn't a larger portion of the meta game, Rakdos Midrange, uh, Grixis Midrange, and then Other. 
So, and it's actually pretty sweet. 20 decks and 20% of the field was other. I don't know. I feel like that's not usually the case in these things. I feel like other is usually like 4% of the meta game. Yeah, go ahead. My screen says 50 decks. Oh, sorry. So 50 decks, 20, almost 22% of the meta game. That's impressive, right? I mean, that speaks to it being a fairly diverse format. What's jumping out to you from looking at this list? Like, where, like where do you want to start in just digesting the decks that people have submitted? I'll go to the top rope, Mono White. We talked about it near the end of last week that it was kind of dawning on you that this is our format. I wasn't even that upset that Naya Runes was really good. What upsets me is that the best thing to do if everyone's playing Naya Runes for the most part is to play Mono White. Because Thalia, Archon of Emeria, Skyclave Apparition, all of these cards are just kind of a bane to the Naya Rune player. Shuts down their primary game plan and then farms them with a quick clock. So it bothers me tremendously because mono white wasn't that good in alchemy last time we checked in and now the metagames shifted in such a way that two things have happened one runes is popular so it has a very popular deck that it can just farm so makes it one of the best aggro choices and the most popular aggro choice thing two the wandering emperor this card it's become very quickly the most played new card in standard at the top tables if you look at standard events and standard deck lists from magic online and it's now really up there in the alchemy metagame as well and we even see it in historic in a few lists that card is proving its worth day after day and mono white aggro players even when they run thalia are seeing a lot of value in slamming the wandering emperor because it's so hard to play around and it plays so well from so many scenarios what a card it is absolutely bringing it i i can't remember how high we were on it in previous season do you remember what we said about wandering emperor i'm positive i thought it was good we discussed it being like a card that was had the potential of being very formidable and having a lot of versatility and we were saying that if the format goes in particular directions then cards like the wandering emperor will be very good and what do you know the format has gone in particular directions and the wandering emperor is very good so one of the things that has become very important to note especially when you're trying to fight these naya runes deck is that exile is just everything when you have a deck which not only has like this kami that just comes back from the graveyard basically at the end of every turn that it gets killed and then also you have cards like you know valorous stance which people can leave up and protect from destroy effects the exile just starts to become so important to fight and i mean that's just one deck against which it's good there are plenty of other threats in the format that exile is very very good against you know i've been finding myself like when i'm building decks for the meta uh and running white when i'm including the wandering emperor is i'm like thinking about taking out like some 12 12 attacking freaking trampling lifelinking kami or whatever i think the exile is becoming so prominent that it's not nearly as scary as it was and the kami's been going actually down one thing that's on that note a lot of people have found this but you're going to see it in deck lists moving forward. It was something I got on last week. Skyclave Apparition is back to being better than Brutal Cathar because the Wandering Emperor is a card you can hit with Skyclave Apparition, hitting a Kami or a Generous Visitor with a bunch of runes and plus one, plus one counters on it and giving the opponent back a generic 2-2 is way better than giving them back either of those creatures with Brutal Cathar if it were to die. I, I would say that without question at this point, that you really, 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 really want to be playing Skyclave Apparition to the point that Yuta Takahashi, reigning world champion, he went against Paulo Vitor Damaderosa, and it was Runes versus Mono White. Paulo Vitor Damaderosa on, I believe, four apparitions. Takahashi on three apparitions in the Runes deck. I looked at his Runes list and I was like, oh, I like that with the way the format is going. Yeah, for the mirror. I watched a lot of Naya people also just hanging on to those apparitions to hit their opponent's Archon. Yeah, I mean, apparition not getting any worse, that's for sure. I just think it's so funny how, like, this is, like, the most controlling that we've ever seen Mono White look in these kind of recent meta games. Uh, it's kind of sweet, and it also just shows us, like, the depth of like the three drop slot in particular of these decks and how you can just tailor it to the meta game and just the overall power of these cards. So um, for anyone complaining that white is the worst color in magic, not anywhere close to our arena formats. I know what you're saying, but I can't call it sweet. <laughs> it's mono white, it's the enemy. 
I can't do it. There were some stats posted by Fire Shoes through the Alchemy round four. So the first four rounds were Alchemy. So we have data from the first day. And Runes definitely came in with a huge target as the potentially broken deck in the format. But there was definitely enough ways to attack it basically kill all their creatures or shut them down with archons and taxes that they took a beating runes went 47 and 79 that's kind of rough that is mean and then mono white uh, on the other hand went 89 and 64 solidly positive win percentage in the tournament there pour one out for azorius control 16 and 26 uh brutal i love azorius control i wouldn't play it I, I was really surprised to see the representation it had because I don't think I could do it. It's too nasty right now. I have not played Alchemy recently, and I certainly haven't played or seen Azorius Control very much, but my feeling is it probably just doesn't grind well enough. Let's return to these numbers in a little while, but I just want to do a little bit more speculation here. So let's talk about Ozov Venture. Why did people decide to play this deck? Did they just buff it enough clearly there's something going on here not only like was the deck strong but apparently it lined up fairly well against the format so what do you think was happening there let's also mention who's playing it because these aren't memers this is kai buddha the person who's won more pro tours than anybody on the face of the earth until paulo catches him but he's he's fighting and then there is gabriel nasif streamer yellow hat and mtg hall of famer like these are real players who usually lean to the control and lots of decision side of the game playing orzov venture and the one thing i want to make sure i stress about it is we're going to call it orzov venture and it's going to get the orzov venture handle and all the baggage that comes with that of look buffs are successful versus look this mechanic is trash this is venture as in my opinion a minimum effective dose what you're seeing is you're seeing triumphant adventure which is now a very good two drop with a ton of text on it since the buff you're seeing precipitous drop which is just a removal spell that when it lines up hits a ton of what's in the format and you're seeing nadar selfless paladin so 12 venture cards in your 75 i would still call it a venture deck based on those numbers but it's not like an overwhelming, we need to venture every turn deck. Especially if Nadar and Triumphant Adventurer just get killed by removal spells, you might not venture in a game. It's just it's like kind of an Ozov aggro list with an adventure sub-theme. I can see it. I mean, getting access to powerful spells like Vanishing Verse and whatnot, Ozov has just been gaining speed and momentum and also proving that it has a surprisingly deep card pool. It doesn't surprise me to see a list like this showing up and people actually believing in it. What the deck does... Oh, I also left off one copy of Dungeon Descent. <laughs> oh, we got that. What I think the deck really is at the core is another mid-range deck built around four copies of City Stalker Connoisseur and some number of the Wandering Empire two in this case because there are going to be a number of city stalker connoisseur decks that we're going to get into i was saying that if you take the mardu list and mash it up with the grixis list and mash it up with the rakdos list of like city stalker kiki jiki fable of the mirror breaker decks you actually have about 13 percent of meta like that's a lot of fable of the mirror breaker a card that frankly we haven't seen played in standard and we haven't talked about on this show maybe ever I, I guess we should segue into those decks and have a look at them. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, take us there, man. So I'm going to go with the person who's currently undefeated, uh, former adversary slash frenemy of mine and streamer, Jim Davis. Jim Davis is running Grixis Midrange. This is a really cool list. I'm just going to go down the list because probably nobody's seen this unless they follow Jim's stream. It has one sword in the Mirthless. It has four Kaito Shizuki. Another thing that we saw is like people trying to combine that with some venture cards because it's really good with Triumphant Adventure, actually, as your two drop that attacks and then Kaito to draw cards. But then continue with Jim's list. It's got two Graveyard Trespasser and four Blood Tithe Harvester. That's the three two that makes a blood and can sacrifice to do minus X minus X where X is twice your blood. Kind of weird to see that card so much. There's two Duress in the main deck. There's two Power Word Kills in the main deck. There's two Abrades. There's two Flame Blessed Bolts. And there's two Voltage Surge. That's the one red, two damage, sacrifice an artifact, deal four. So a real wide array of removal and interaction. There are four copies of the Fable of the Mirror Breaker. 
Should we read that? I don't know if we've ever read this on stream. Take us there, man. This is a saga. It's two in a red enchantment. Chapter one, create a 2-2 red goblin shaman creature token. When Whenever this creature attacks, create a treasure. Chapter two, you may discard up to two cards, then draw that many cards. And chapter three, exile this, return to the battlefield, transformed under your control. And I would love to read you the backside, but uh, I can't flip a card on Magic's uh, decklist website. So I'm just going to have to try to do it off the back of my head. I think it's a 2-2 that for one in a tap, create a token copy of target creature and exile it at the beginning of your end step. That's basically it. That's a card. That card's been showing off and doing all kinds of things, man. I haven't covered what we're trying to copy yet because it's hidden in the other section of the deck list because Magic website hasn't programmed its own alchemy-specific cards to show up as a set in their own game. So I'll get to that in a second. But because it's listed under the land, let me just mention, as 26 lands that include two Hive of the Eye Tyrant and one Den of the Bugbear, a bunch of pathways, some Stormcarved Coast and Shipwreck Marches, one Mountain, one Swamp. And then under Other, we have four City Stalker Connoisseur. So this is like the first card. There are so many mid-range decks built around this card. The 3-3 Death Touch for four, that creates a blood token. And when it enters the battlefield, the opponent has to discard the most expensive card in their hand. So copying that with a fable sounds really juicy. Do you copy only as a sorcery? This is where I need to see the backside of this card. I, this is important information, because if you can do this at instant speed, you can lock the opponent out of their draw step. Nope, you can do it at instant speed. That's right, because I watched people as well. There was a trick they were doing where they would wait until their opponent's end step and then make a reflection and then untap and actually be able to attack with it. That's a really cool synergy, but if your opponent's on actual zero castables and you can have Reflection of the Mirror Breaker, Copying Connoisseur, any card that they draw with a casting cost is going in the bin. That's a lock. Now, if you like locking people out of the game in a really nasty way, the next card on this list is Townraiser Tyrant. Does that sound like a fun card to copy with the Mirror Breaker? We were trying to like lessen the impact of that card in the format and just getting to make one every turn. It's something else, man. <laughs> what we're seeing is like a deck list that could easily be a meme, but is actually just like performing and, and crushing people at the championship and whatever. And on top of that, there are three Rahilda Wanted Cutthroat to round out the uh, main deck. As that card is pretty busted in aggro or mid-range shells, I've enjoyed playing that card a lot in alchemy, so... Happy to see it doing its thing. Dude, it's a spicy and actually really sweet deck list. Good luck to Jim. Bring it on. Let's go. So, okay, obviously Kaito Shizuki is like a powerful card. I mean, no one has to wonder if this is like a good magic card or not. As far as I can tell, that's the main reason they're playing blue in this deck. And like, is it just that good that you just want to put blue in your Rakdos deck? It's not the same thing. But I'll give you my experience. Last night, I 7-0'd a standard event with Kaito Shizuki as the only blue card in an Esper Planeswalker list. And then today, recording, I went 4-1, and one, and I only lost a game where I kept a 3-lander and never drew land 4. I had Doomscar in the Fortel zone with a Thalia on the opponent's side, and it was sad. But, I mean, yeah, I'm winning with it. It's doing work even when you don't have something to attack with. When you do have something to attack with, it just runs them out of the game. When you don't have something to attack with, the card just kind of helps you filter into the goods. It's very good for a three-mana Planeswalker. In a mid-range meta, it's really powerful because you just kind of get this cheap thing that not enough people are playing Planeswalker hate for. And if you play it smart against the red decks and just plus it a lot, they have trouble dragons firing it. They have trouble demon bolting it. I think that the card has a real home and as the only blue card it's not that hard to splash it off pathways and some chill lands i could see it playing into some very potent turn sequencing like for example let's say you foretell a doomscar on two and then you play a kaito shizuki on three it phases out so your opponents can't even attack it and then on the next turn you can just wipe the board and have a nice planeswalker that your opponent had a very very little chance to interact with so um, i could easily see stuff like that being really powerful I also want to give a shout out to another streamer. The one they call Mistman is in this. You wouldn't know it because you can't search for Mistman and find him. Yeah, I don't know what his name is. Who who does? K-O-Z-I-N-A. 
He's been updating his Discord, so we were able to find him. K-O-Z-I-N-A. And like Jim Davis, undefeated, going into Historic, playing Mardu's Sacrifice, which is another Fable of the Mirror Breaker deck. This one, though, doesn't have the City Stalker Connoisseur in it, but instead it's playing a Sacrifice list with Oni Cult Anvil and Cursebound Witch and Sanguine Brushstroke, but it also has Archon of Amiria as like the white card. It's basically a sacrifice list with a little white splash to hose the rune deck. And that easy splashing when you have Forsaken Crossroads and then the Pathways and Chill Lands means anybody can play an Archon of Amiria if runes is their bad matchup. It's really taking a toll on the rune decks. It can go either way in a format. We've had championships where everyone knew that like it decks were some of the strongest decks coming in and they tried to do their thing and they weren't really able to hold it down. It seems like this is not the case. It seems like people who have teched against the runes deck have managed to bring enough hate and they've managed to expose enough of the weaknesses of that deck that they have, for the moment anyway, been able to hold that deck back. You've got two paths. You can kill all of their creatures which I've been enjoying on Ladder all week. Or you can play Archon of Amiria, a lot of rune decks that just don't have enough removal or any. So you can really victimize them if they try to play Solitaire, like the lists that have been successful for a few weeks have been trying to do. I was saying this on my watch party. When there is a set championship, you should come to Covert Go Blue. It's like twitch.com slash Covert Go Blue. Yeah, pro streamer. And uh, check out the watch parties. They're fun. But anyway, I was going to say that if this was old school Pro Tour and it was one to two weeks after the release of a set, then I think runes would have dominated. People wouldn't have prepared for it. They wouldn't be hating it nearly as hard. You would have the old school boomer testing houses where the players got together and played like paper magic with each other. And they'd be like, ooh, we have this sick deck, but nobody's going to be ready for this. And then they're just going to hope that other people didn't find it. And the people who show up with it have a dominant weekend. And then the weeks after are dedicated to beating it. This would have dominated an old school pro tour. But here with the positioning of this event, runes got targeted and it's getting hated a lot. Frankly, I'm happy to see it. Maybe it means we'll see a little bit less memeing around on the ladder and we can all kind of like keep moving along and maybe trying to keep developing this format instead of just having to freaking devote so much brain space to beating this stupid deck. There's a difference between being able to beat something and being interested in devoting your attention to beating that thing. If a metagame revolves enough around a certain problem, then maybe even if you figured out a way to solve the problem, if it's just really boring or like, this is what's happening for me is I'm just like waiting to get to the next stage of the metagame so we can start asking more interesting questions and start building like some more next level deck lists. And so I, for one, am really hoping that that's the direction we're moving in because I think that there is a sweet format here. I just want to get there now. Can I share you a sweet brew that went 4-0? All right. Lay it on us. One of my favorite players to watch is uh, Shota Yasuoka, Hall of Famer, known control mage aficionado, always playing like some kind of a control deck, regardless of circumstance most of the time, whether or not it's well positioned. It's his jam. He brought to the alchemy portion. Have you seen this at all yet? It's his Is It Mill deck? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So you start off right at the top. There are two farewells, six mana. Excel all artifacts, all creatures, all enchantments, all graveyards. It's a choose one or more of those. Look at the white sources in the mana base. I was just checking it out. So he's got some Needle Verge Pathways, and that's it? Two Sundown Pass, four Needle Verge Pathway. Two Sundown Pass, right. There's also three Forsaken Crossroads, but here's the thing. Your Pathways and your Crossroads can't be naming white because the rest of the deck isn't white. Exactly. So it's basically just treasure and the occasional random late game pathway that he's making the white mana with. Nope. You're right that that's the way that the white mana is getting made. The way this is getting cast, four copies of Invoke Calamity. He's probably like pitching it to Unexpected Windfall and then just getting it back later with the calamity right yep big brain as always it does work out very nicely right because the cap on calamity being six mana value that just works out nicely to casting two copies of tasha's hideous laughter if he's got them available if he's already cast one or more of those that should be a fatal casting i had tried really hard to build an is it deck when epiphany was banned just around like copying tasha's hideous laughter and being a control deck otherwise and i came up short and I wish I had 
Invoke Calamity. The Farewell Spice is nice. This isn't the only person, though, using Invoke Calamity in this tournament. There's a few lunatics out there. Have you seen what I'm going to lay on you? No, this is a surprise to me. I'm going to read this deck list from the top. And as soon as I read the very first card, your water is in jeopardy, so you better put it down. I'm ready. Starting at the top, this is Yo Tezuka's Is It list. Three copies, Body of Research. Oh, I heard about this. Sick. Can you recite Body of Research without looking? It's that Simic card, green, 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 blue, blue, blue. You make a fractal the size of your library. Green, 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 blue, 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 mythic sorcery. Create a zero, zero green and blue fractal creature token. Put X plus one plus one counters on it, where X is the number of cards in your library. Why would someone do this? Okay, I'm reading down this list. This is hilarious. And then they have Burn Down the House, Expressive Iteration, which is just getting things handled in the meantime. So much of this deck is just is it stuff consider that but then we get down to some fun cards such as invoke calamity which is obviously going to help us to cast that body of research and then we hit kazool's fury you know it's kind of like i don't care how much life my runes opponent has gained if i'm flinging like 40 damage at their face you care if they went over 40 (laughs) (laughs) you're probably losing anyway right at that point You didn't do a good job controlling this board at all. But that's amazing. I love seeing three copies of a green, 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 blue, blue, blue card getting played in a solidly is a deck. The idea is that you can do body of research at instant speed using Invoke Calamity because it does let you scale up one mana. Most people look at it as I really want to cast two cards with Invoke Calamity. You can cast one and you can do it at instant speed. So if your opponent taps out like at any point, You can play Invoke Calamity, Body of Research, make the big fractal, and then if you have three more mana available, or if you can untap from that position, Kazuo's Fury, you're dead. I mean, you don't always need the Fury. Maybe you just attack them for 40, because they tapped out to attack you. I remember Crafty's, like, the win con in the Teamer Adventure decks was often just flinging a massive beanstalk giant at your opponent's face. And uh, yeah, it's as satisfying as it sounds. Your opponent takes all of these actions, they do all of these things, they threaten you, and they have this whole narrative about how the game is going, and then you just, boom! It's like the channel fireball, just freaking roast them. A deck I never got to play that I was going to play, but Standard 2022 came out, so I never played that Standard again, but I was going to play... Teamer Adventures with the Body of Research Kazil's Fury combo in the sideboard as the thing you go fetch. That's so sweet, man. I know you can play Adventures in Historic, but I feel so lame about that. Because at that point, Lucky Clover had been banned. Scenic little detour through some of the fun decks in the tournament. Let's take a look at these Jeskai Hinata decks to just see if we can glean anything from those. You and Batello didn't talk enough about Jeskai Hinata. Okay. Here we go. He was playing it in standard, and I'm trying to figure out whether we have any alchemy cards in this list at all. I kind of don't feel like we do apart from the land. Oh, okay, he's also got unexpected conversion, and I guess you can still play divide by zero in this format, which uh, I forgot because I didn't see any blue decks playing today. He's running unexpected conversion, two divide by zeros, three forsaken crossroads. That's where he's getting the juice from alchemy. This is basically just a standard list with a couple of upgrades. Imagine getting to still be a divide by zero enjoyer. The luxury. But we were talking about this card and I'm kind of surprised to see it here, the Wandering Emperor. Chris actually main decking a copy of this card, which is just kind of underscoring how important it is because white was always the splash in these decks. It gets like a kind of a nod because of open deck list. People don't want to play around attacking into it. It's, whoa, 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 our opponent passed with four mana open and two of it could be white. What do I do? <laughs> he was talking about how he expected there to be more Hinata in the meta game. And it also makes me wonder if he was expecting there to be more stuff like Old Span Dragon and whatever turning sideways. Good targets for the Emperor. That stood out to me about this list. I think the rest of it's pretty pretty predictable. He cut the gold spans. He did. 
Chris Patello would never be caught doing something so, you know, directly powerful. He's always trying to get there, like, through the back-end way. I'm waiting for him to realize his content creator brain and have it merge with his uh, magic brain so that he does things like tweet out, like, that gold span is trash and unplayable. He just needs to spend a little more time watching your channel, CGB. He'll, he'll, he'll get the cantankery under control. He literally registered two suspicious stowaways, zero gold span dragon. Yeah, you think the stowaway is sus, CGB? There is a tweet there. You could just rile up Twitter really good if you tried. Let's talk about, there's a couple of cards in this list that stood out to me. Solandi Vision getting some play. I guess you just really need to find your opus when you need to find your opus, right? I guess I'm still not a fan. I have tried it in some of these lists and they keep playing it and it keeps costing me. I also think it's a better best of three card because two of your three games might be sideboarded. Sideboarded games have more of the right interaction, so they're slower. So drawing one too many lands is more punishing. In best of one, I can't make room for it. No, that's fair enough. Another card that stands out to me is Syncopate. It's a very infrequently played counter spell these days, and he's main decking three of them. What do you read from that? Is it the exile that's important to him? It means he always believes he'll have a good mana advantage, and it does pair pretty well with Hinata because you get a plus one on the mana. I struggle with Syncopate. I really do. Especially in open deck lists environments, it feels like people do a good job playing around it. But it does get a lot better if there's targeted removal at your Hinata because then you get a plus two on your Syncopate. Encountering a spell for one blue mana and exiling it must feel really good. I will say that negate is not where you want to be in a format with a lot of white. And Disdainful Stroke's not where you want to be against runes a good amount of the time. You might tag a Hollowed Haunting of a Showdown, but you also might get beaten to death while doing that. I guess if you've got to do something, Syncopate's probably better than a Reject or something super narrow. Him going in on three copies in the main is definitely a statement. I'll be interested to see how that all pans out. All right, lay it on me. What's coming next? You thought it was a meme card, that it would never get played. In a major event, you thought you were right and it was over. But it's not over, Arjuna. Because a group of pro players, including Brad Nelson and Brian Bronduin and more, registered each four copies of Storm the Festival in their list. Okay, first of all, Pendulum swings back over to CGB. Yeah, we thought that wager was done, but, you know, we resurrected it from the graveyard and it's still here. Content is content. I'm just going to quickly read down this list because it's got a lot of cards that, shall we say, are eyebrow-raising. So uh, playing one Renan 7 and two Wandering Emperor, both cards we would reasonably expect to see in a list like this. But then we get to the creature slot. And what do you know? We've got... Ayo, three copies. I mean, shocker and not sarcastically. Like In a world where exile is being like pushed, everybody is trying to exile. They've got three Ayos. I was surprised too. They're also running Legion Angel, one copy, uh, with presumably more in the sideboard. They're running Yashan, Archon of Ameria, Skyclave Apparition, none of which I think should surprise anyone for this list. Two Reclusive Taxidermist. That's another card we really haven't seen showing up much. And two copies of Catilda, presumably another <laughs> mana generator. And of course, four Tangled Florahedron. I have two things to add. First of all, Catilda, way better in alchemy than anywhere else because of cards like Rahilda and a number of other werewolves that Reckless Stormseeker, you can just sit there and block. It's, it's actually comes up a lot. Uh, Brutal Cathar also can't hit it, which is kind of crazy. Reclusive Taxidermist, in an interview, they said they use it to cast cards from their Key to the Archives, of which there are three copies that you're getting to. So the one man of any color is actually important there to cast your archive hits without your key, because people blow up the key a lot. And then the thing I really wanted to add the most is that I have played against somebody who casts Legion Angel and fetched nothing. Oh, brutal. <laughs> it's awesome. They obviously clicked through the warnings on Arena, dude. Another card that this deck is featuring is three copies of Azusa's Many Journeys. Head scratcher? Yeah, a little bit of a head scratcher. I do have to applaud them for playing Azusa's Many Journeys with Tangled Florahedron. I think that that's a combo that might not jump out to a lot of people, but just being able to like get your tap land in, I think is pretty sweet. I see four Tangle Florhedron and four Amiria's Call. That's 22-26 potential land. And then on top of that, you have three copies of Yasharn that can go get land. Oh, but there's also four Crossroads. Looks like 30 cards that can come in 
as land. So I guess when literally half of your deck is land, the Azusa's journey starts to make a little more sense there. I, I remember what we learned from Gross Spiral, and that even drew a card of what it took. Now I'm on board. But it is still very interesting to just see this card show up because I think I myself, probably you and a lot of other people have kind of written it off. Clearly they think that making those extra land drops and gaining the life is good enough. Because I mean, obviously getting a 3-3 three, three outs of this thing is like fine-ish, but the fact that it pops out so late, I think for me has often been a deal breaker. But it looks like they have enough powerful fours, fives, and sixes in the deck that they're happy to just jam it. Maybe you already tried it in your ramp list, but maybe you want to try it out some more because I think where it is good is when you get that 3-3 three, three on a turn when you would also do something else two turns after your first ramp. Like you can do a big thing and also have a blocker in case the opponent does something about your big thing. It's critical mass for things like putting counters on from AO. Having a blocker so that when you slam your Wandering Emperor on defense you have a surprisingly good blocker, right? I also think there's a maybe a little bit of a hidden synergy with Ren and 7. If you plus Ren and 7 and draw a bunch of lands all of a sudden you can make an extra land drop on that turn so definitely see an argument for it honestly i also think this is kind of a a comment on best of three versus best of one as well uh posted a rant on twitter the other day about how best of one was basically choking out entire deck archetypes from the meta game that i wanted to play i was going to bring this up even if you didn't I kind of want you to go off King for the people at home who may not check Twitter, which is a lot of them. The people who have Twitter and listen to this podcast crossover is pretty low because I think you make good points. I've also been getting like on the DMs or in the mentions like, hey, Arjuna's taking shots at best of one. Arjuna and CGB aren't going to get along anymore. They're going to play different formats. What's going to happen to our podcast? You know, I love how every time I have a bad day in the arena, you end up playing like the reassuring mother or something. <laughs> I think is a testament both to people's faith in you as a human being and also to the dedication of the crafties. I think this reflects well on everyone except me, which I guess is the way things usually go down around here. Covert Go Mom is here. Covert Go Mom is going to tell you to stop being a little drama queen. I do want you to talk about your tweet because I do think it was 99% good points, 1% angry boomer yell at clouds. Fair enough. I acknowledge the boomerishness of it. I mean, shall we just go into it right now? Okay, so the card Azusa's Many Journeys in particular was a card that really highlighted to me the differences between best of one and best of three. And so I've been having this experience lately where I like to build ramp decks. That's fairly obvious to everyone. You've become a hero to the ramp fans, by the way. Go on. <laughs> I'm proud of my status and I try to uphold that and I try to make deck lists for the crafties and for the Knights of Arjuna. We actually had a crafty who self-dubbed themselves a Knight of Arjuna and it's kind of become a thing ever since. I'm trying to do the work for the people, and I've found it exceedingly hard to fill that niche in this format, and I was banging my head against the wall. Why is this so frustrating? And what I came to was that I was just playing a lot of best of one. And so this is what happens in best of one, is that the hand smoother biases towards giving you two landers and three landers. Unless you run more than half your deck is land. Which basically doesn't happen these days. Back in the like Field of the Dead days or like the Wilderness Wreck days, we could maybe think about it, but you can't get away with that nonsense these days. The short version of why is it like looks at the percentage of your deck that is land and tries to give you a hand where the mirrors the percentage of your deck that is land. That's why I run 27 lands a lot to get more three land hands. Go on. And so this is what's been happening to me. You build a ramp deck, which is like approximately half land a bunch of ramp, and then just like a bunch of very expensive cards. And the problem with the best of one algorithm is that it's angling real hard to give you a two or three land hand. What happens a lot, let's say you get a two lander on the play and your chances of hitting every land drop every turn thereafter are very slim. And this isn't a problem in a mono white deck because oftentimes mono white can just park it at three lands or even sometimes at two lands and have a cogent game plan. Maybe they're not doing exactly what they wanna do, but they're resolving spells, they're advancing their game plan and they're still being threatening. In a ramp deck, that is a joke. Like you miss a land drop in the first couple of turns of a ramp deck and you can often just pack it in right from there. 
I started taking my lists over to best of three and it was like night and day. All of a sudden I'm getting five land opening hands. I was said in my tweet that here's a perfect example of a hand you would love to see in a ramp deck is four lands, Azusa's many journeys, and then basically anything more expensive than that, right? A four drop, a five drop, whatever. That's like the god hand for one of these lists. But you just see that so rarely in best of one because best of one's actively trying to not give you a four land hand. It would rather give you a three or a two land hand if it sees one. And because it looks at, I don't remember whether it's two hands or even three hands, you could get a five lander and arena's like, throw it back. And then you get a four lander and arena's like, throw it back. And then you get a two lander and arena's like, oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the odds are really not good in your favor to get these like four land hands, which is what ramp decks love to see. I could go more into detail about it. And I mentioned some specific examples of things that have and haven't worked in that context. But, you know, it basically what it brought me to was that there are certain archetypes, which I think are very playable and have game in best of three and cards such as Azusa's Many Journeys, which I do think can have game in best of three, that I think you're very ill-advised to play in best of one. The solution, if you really wanted to ramp in best of one, like this should be your primary formula, which is 27 things that are straight up lands. So you get three landers more than two landers. And then after that, you need enough DFCs, like cards that are land or spell, it, the odds of getting one in your start opening hand actually tip. You need like an aggro deck, try and have a one drop. You need like eight MDFCs, eight cards that are also lands. Four mirrors call four fluorohedron on top of 27 land. And the problem with that is now you have 35 cards in your deck taking up that space, which means you got to make some sacrifices somewhere. Either you have less top end ugh, or you have uh, less in between. So you end up having turns where you just don't do much. It doesn't even out well for ramp decks. It's really hard. And I know that you've run into this because, you know, you don't play as many ramp decks, but you play a lot of controlling decks and you like to play late game decks. And I would wager that you are a bigger fan than the average arena player of making your land drops. I was thinking about like the CGB lists over the years, and I've noticed that you've always biased towards these cards that like the draw two, discard twos, right? What's the one that makes creatures and draws you a card and stuff? <laughs> You're testing me this time. <laughs> the one that makes creatures and draws you a card and stuff. <laughs> I don't even dignify them by remembering their name. So there are these cards which I think a lot of people look at and they bump them down on the playability level because they don't look very powerful. But I think that you specifically being the one and best of one look at these cards and you think this is going to solve my opening hand problem or this is going to solve my like hitting my land drop so I can wrath the board problem. When the shuffler gives me two lands and this, the odds of me actually getting to land drop Four go up instead of down. I think that that's something that it may not stand out to the average person who's just looking at your deck lists and especially looking at some of these kind of random cards in your two drop and three drop slot that maybe seem a little bit suboptimal. I've come to respect your choices in that vain because those are the cards that are bridging you in this format that you've chosen to play. They, they are underrated for sure. For me, it's not so much like rage quitting best of one. I too love the format and I too like to play quick games sometimes. And I too sometimes don't want to sit down and just commit to like a 50 minute match or whatever. But I've just come to realize that it was bad for my self-esteem. I was building all of these lists that to me felt like very functional magic lists and then just consistently getting absolutely plowed. Switching over to best of three was just like the magic light switch for me. I was like, wow, okay, I'm actually just playing a best of three list. That's kind of the conversation. I'd be interested to hear the feedback from the crafties. I think there's a lot to talk about there. Frankly, I think that more consideration in evaluating cards needs to be given to the difference between those two formats. I wish I had the mental dexterity to be able to switch between best of one and best of three because i like a lot of decks in a lot of formats that would be better in best of three i believe and i can't do it because i'm addicted to the hand smoothing algorithm i hate mulliganing the bottom line is that the machine gives you more playable sevens and i like having sevens and i feel it when i switch like it really bothers me uh crokies joined this 
team recently too since he came back from his holiday break he's been playing a ton of best of one he says the hand smoothing algorithm is just best of one gas he like me doesn't play nearly as much ramp i think that you you know really made a case for the ramp fans out there but i mean if you play combo or aggro i swear that best of one is a beautiful place to be you're just not going to flood as often you're always going to have like this low land count high spell count if you build your deck a certain way in your opening hand and then if you're a control mage like me it's like i'm always making these little tweaks to my decks to try to juke the algorithm that's trying to screw me it doesn't want me to hit those land drops it wants me to build a like 24 land and look at my like two ambitious farmhand and four or restoration of a ganjo and think yeah i have 30 ways to get land i'll definitely hit those land drops but i won't and i know it i know it because i've been down this road before i'll keep that two lander i might even have that ambitious farmhand but i'm flipping a coin or worse every return to hit that next land and sometimes you just don't do it and it's best of one so you only get one shot and you don't want to get memed on okay i can't just have the clerics deck go off on me i have a reputation to uphold i need max percentage points in these matchups would that they could just print the buff of malizas in every single set right is that the one you were talking about i actually didn't even mention that cod i was talking about I think environmental sciences probably saved 30% of your deck lists. I remember you're one of the first people I saw playing, you know, meme cards like 10 the Pests or whatever. It's not 10 the Pests, it's um, Hunt for Specimens. That card's fine, but you were like the first person I saw playing that card because you know, CGB knows what happens. I know I need to get that land because the shuffler doesn't get it for me. Environmental sciences were the thing I highlighted, and then the other one was Fortel. I think that Fortel was designed partially to mitigate this. Think about how many times you had to foretell the hold the multiverse on turn two so that you can hit your freaking third land drop. So I can cast it, just straight cast it on my main phase on turn three. Yeah, good times. Right where you want to be as a control mage. Just tapped the F out to hit that land drop. Tapped out on the most critical turn of the game. You know, it's not that Wizards has done nothing to address it, but it's a problem in the format. And quite frankly, I wish that the knobs were tweaked a little differently. I wish that the matchmaking algorithm have a say in the hand smoothing algorithm because the matchmaking algorithm has all kinds of opinions about which deck my deck should be playing against. So it naturally follows that it could also have a lot of opinions about a good hand for the kind of deck that I'm playing. But I digress. I want to validate your feelings. I, I agree with what you're saying. I'm just honestly curious. If you get some time this week, try the formula for best of one. Try 27 lands plus eight MDFCs. I have tried it. I haven't pulled it off, but I'm not the ramp master like you are, and I don't have the patience for it. I, I'm curious if you can use this formula and turn it into a good ramp deck, especially in this format where it's very hard. A good best of one ramp deck. If you can do it, all the respect in the world, man. I would love to see it. I think what you're highlighting is that I need to be playing this silly Selesnia Storm deck in Best of One because it seems perfectly positioned, man. They followed your formula almost to a T. The whole point of this chapter of this episode of the Arena Craft is a score one point for Covert Go Blue. I love that. I love it when we do this as the theme of the show. I am surprised we don't do it every week. I leave every show feeling on top of the world. Well, until I'm right. Two things. First of all, I hope I see Jim Davis and Miss do very well in this event. Awesome to see the streamers getting their shots on big stages, and hopefully they bring it home, because that would be awesome. I have to go try some Fable of the Mirror Breaker, because that is not a card that was on my radar whatsoever. Screw Mono White, I hate it. Apparently Runes is beatable, and uh, long live Azorius. I think that that's a good place for us to leave it for today, in terms of the deckless discussion. Before we go out, let's just do like a quick overview of how things did in the alchemy format on day one. So as CGB highlighted, Azorius Control got kind of wrecked uh, 16 wins to 26 losses here. We also saw Bant Control get kind of destroyed 2-7. and seven. Bant Ramp did okay 2-1, and one, but it's probably kind of the same archetype as Bant Control with maybe a few differences. I have no idea what's going on with Bant Control. I didn't find one of those lists to be honest. Yeah, it's probably some kind of band key nonsense that I was messing on when I was uh, really playing the format heavily, only probably better. Maybe not better, actually, it went two and seven, right? Boros aggro to no one's surprise, one and five. Esper Cleric's doing all right, five and one. So Cleric's still got some junk in the trunk, I guess. 
band control is blue-white control with two copies of Colossal Sky Turtle and one copy of Shigeki Jukai Visionary for the long game. <laughs> this is basically like the shuffle deck all over again. The four mana counter spell that shuffles stuff back into the deck. Devious cover-up. Just the endless grind. Beautiful. I might be hitting download on this deck. I'm a fan of the snake turtle, man. I think it's got legs. A snake turtle literally has no legs. <laughs> Neither snakes nor turtles. No more misinformation. <laughs> Stop the fake news. I'm sorry, I should be letting you finish this and some things must be said. CGV is taking a stand. He's dying on that hill. He will allow for no anatomical incorrectness on this show. I'm muting myself now. Go on. The deepest of, of injustices. Uh, let's see. Grixis midrange at 9 and 12. We've got Gruel Werewolves at 11 and 7. So managing to maintain a, a you know winning record, which is decent. We've got Is It Aggro? Who the heck knows what that is? Probably some kind of like uh, Delva. Yeah, that's the, that's the card I'm trying to think of. Is It Calamity at 7 and 2, which uh, is different from Is It Mill? So I guess that must be the uh, body of research deck. So yeah, both of these. So Is It Calamity 7 and 2 and Is It Mill at 3 and 0? Oh. These decks putting up some results. I think there's something to this Calamity card. I know CGB's been messing around with the various Calamities. Yep, Calamities are fun. No, they're not even Calamities. It's in the Invokes. It's the Invokes. That's what it is. Yeah, okay. Uh, so let's see. Is it Control at 3 and 6? I don't even know what those deck lists are built around. Not even Hole Breaking Horror now. It's probably just like Treasures and Gold Spans. Oh my. Weird, bro. Vanilla. Um, so Jeskai Hinata going 12 and 15. Uh, Chris will be very disappointed to see that. Mardu Midrange, 29 and 19. These decks clearly have legs. Break in the Mirror. Clearly uh, doing some kind of a work there. Mardu sacrifices an even 9 and 9. Uh, mono red aggro 2 and 1. Nah, fake news. Uh, so yeah, mono white aggro, very respectable 89 and 64. Having a good showing at the event. I'm sure that like a lot of those wins are just freaking busting runes over the head. Again, Naya runes at 47 and 79. So that's an ouch. Just getting their lunch money taken by mono white. Got Ozov mid-range doing 7 and 11, so I guess that comes down on that one. That's not Venture, though. That's like tokens. Wow, actually, Venture performing better, 27 and 24. Alchemy is the greatest format ever. Buffs to mechanics like Venture are great. You know what this means, CGB? Oh my god, I'm so disappointed. What, what are they going to buff next? Are blood tokens going to like draw two cards? It's going to be Turtles. They're going to do Turtles next, CGB. We also have Rakdos Aggro at 3 and 3, Rakdos Midrange at 13 and 11, Rakdos Sacrifice at 19 and 20. How 50-50 can this deck be? Obviously, very 50-50. Selesnia Ramp at 7 and 11, and finally Selesnia Tokens at 2 and 1. These are just the day one results. Uh, we'll see a lot more on day two. But I just think that that's really an interesting thing for us to consider here. I'm kind of pumped. I think that the alchemy big tournament thing could have been a disaster if it had been stupid meta, but it's not stupid meta. It seems really interesting and there's technology I don't think anyone was considering. If they can get their acts together, if they can print more uncommons in their packs, if they can do a better job of balancing, I still believe that this can be a really sweet format. I was also thinking like alchemy long game, right? There's a lot of people being like, I don't want to play digital only mechanics, so I will never play alchemy. I left Hearthstone because of digital only mechanics. And they sound exactly like that. What about the people graduating from Hearthstone looking for something different that find alchemy as a better transition? That's an idea. In the long term, it actually brings more people over than it drives out. Because that takes time. People have to get into Hearthstone, play it for a year or two, and then they, as this was discussed in like a shareholder report, like magic has the graduation effect. People graduate from Yu-Gi-Oh, Pokemon, other games, Hearthstone, and get into magic because they hear it's like the place to be as they kind of grow up. And maybe alchemy is better at bringing people over from Hearthstone than it is from sending people away from magic. That's clearly the conversation that's happening in the boardroom. I hope that it's happening. If you are a crafty who's starting in one of those other games i'd be very interested to hear from you and your feedback about how that's gone i'm even thinking of like a well-known streamer and friend of the podcast the one jame actually started in Yu-Gi-Oh and then transferred over to magic so it definitely happens 
I think that's going to do it, CGB, for the show today. Thanks so much for being the brains of the operation today. And uh, <laughs> if you want to find CGB making more good points, and if you want to watch the video version of this podcast, you can go over to his YouTube channel. If you want to take us on the road with you or on the treadmill or on into your spinning class or whatever, you can do that on Spotify, among other podcast platforms. You can find Kovac Go Blue streaming on twitch.youtube.website.tv.something website slash Covert Go Blue. <laughs> Thankfully, I've got the Google juice now that I'm easy to find. Just search for Covert Go Blue and you're fine. And uh, you can find me on that same website at ArenaCraft Podcast. Lastly, I wanted to thank all of our patrons for keeping the fans blowing on this podcast. It really helps us out. We love you all. Please go and join our Patreon if you have a few extra bucks kicking around and you have not done so already. And with that, I'm going to go take a nap. Have a good weekend, CGB. Get well soon. And later, crafties.